The reading tonight is from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Jesus has just performed miracles, including curing a man of leprosy, curing a man of his paralysis so that he could take up his bed and walk. And Luke tells us, in beginning in verse 27, that after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be with you this evening. I'm always very grateful for your presence as well, and we look forward to the opportunities we have to be together, like tonight. Had a wonderful day today. Very, very grateful and thankful for the fine singing tonight. Thank you, Stan, for leading us such a very fine way and for the very fine way that you've entered into our worship service. Very grateful for that, for the prayers, Tim. We're grateful for the scripture reading, Jimmy. Thank you very much for that out of Luke chapter 5, which serves as the basis for our study. For several Sunday nights, you and I have been studying about certain individuals out of the Bible. And primarily, I've been looking at New Testament figures here, and we've been studying about uh, the beloved disciple, which is John, and then Peter, and, and then Mary. We studied about her, and then Thomas last Sunday night, often called Doubting Thomas. Uh, and now tonight, I'd like to talk about Matthew. Now, I don't know that much is said about Matthew. There's a, a lot that we can say about him. There's a lot that we can't say, a lot that we don't know about him. But there are some things that we can say with confidence. It's interesting to me the variety that Jesus used in selecting these apostles and these great men of God. He, he used uh, people from all sorts of society. Some of them were even despised, like we are going to find out about Matthew tonight. But yet each one of them contributed to the kingdom of God in a wonderful way. Uh, the value of studying this way is uh, often used by Jesus. He tells us to imitate their successes and to refuse their mistakes. He taught us about the prodigal. He taught us about the good Samaritan. He tried to teach us that we should reject the attitude of the Levi, uh, Levite and the priest and have the kind of attitude of the Samaritan. And so he would pick different kinds of people, just as he taught us about different kinds of people. And we learn a lot about them. And that's the way it is tonight. One of the great lessons that we're going to learn tonight from the life of Matthew is that when God calls, we need to respond. And I think that's one of the things that we can remember about this great man of God. When God called him from the receipt of tax, he responded to him. He closed up the shop and he followed the Lord, and he never looked back. But before we actually get to that particular matter, I'd like for us to discuss more about the life of Matthew, and then surely we can go away with a greater appreciation for him and the book that he has authored by means of the Holy Spirit. 
One of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is who Matthew was. And again, personally, I don't know much about him. Uh, His name is Levi from the pages of the Bible. But yet there's a lot of matters about his personal life I know very little to nothing about. I probably know more by study of the scriptures about the type of person that he was than I know of who he actually was. The type of person that he was, he was a tax collector. Now, if you're reading out of the King James Version, often you'll see the word publican. And it means the same thing. It is a tax collector. And one of the first things that I learn about the tax collectors in the pages of the New Testament is that they were a hated group of people. They were classed among the sinners of the day, the very lowest, along with the harlots in Matthew chapter 21 and the Gentiles, Matthew chapter 18. Uh, the tax collectors were classed with the lowest of citizens. Cicero states that tax collector and tax collectors is a trade of odium and ill will and is not fit for a gentleman. Uh, they were notoriously unjust. John in Luke chapter 3 and verse 15 says that the tax collectors were not to collect any more than what they should collect. Under the Roman rule, the Romans had a very ingenious way of collecting the taxes. The keep the peace of the Roman Empire was a costly matter, and so they had to pay a great deal of tax, and tax burden was heavy upon the people. Uh, they would uh, not send their soldiers or citizens into a captivated area to collect the tax. They thought of the way of having their own people collect tax from them. That way they wouldn't have to send a Roman soldier into unfamiliar circumstances or into a more of a hostile type of area. We'll let the uh, citizens themselves collect their own taxes. Then to motivate the tax collectors, we'll give them a share of the tax that they collect. So we're going to let them collect their own taxes And then when they've collected all, we're going to give them a portion of that tax and let it keep them, keep the tax for themselves. Now, this made life difficult in first century times. Tax collection under the Roman Empire was a heavy burden, and they taxed for everything. If you wanted to cross a bridge, they had a tax for that. If you wanted to use a horse to cross the bridge, you paid for that. And if you drew a wagon with the horse across the bridge, you paid for that. And the wagon, depending on how many wheels the wagon has got, you want to pay tax on that. So tax collectors were an important part of the climate of the, jet of the day. And there was a lot of taxes that they collected and the people were poor. Now let's add to the mix more by looking at the Jewish concept of tax collecting and tax collectors. The Jewish people felt like that their traditions forbade them to pay any taxes. They looked upon themselves as being under a theocracy. That is, God is the king, God is the leader, and we pay to him, but we should not have to pay to this foreign power. So when Rome occupies Israel and the Jewish mind, then it becomes a very serious matter for them, and they looked upon it as sacrilege that they have to pay taxes to the Roman Empire. There's a number of Bible passages that talk about paying taxes and the responsibility which people have to pay taxes, and I'm sure part of that is the result of a Jewish mindset that was saying, no, we're not going to pay any tax. We don't want to have to pay this tax. And anybody who collects the tax from us has got to be very unpatriotic. 
And anyone who collects the taxes from us to give to the Roman Empire has got to be a traitor. And we're not going to have anything to do with him. If you'll remember in Luke chapter 18, and I'll turn to that passage because I'm always touched by that great lesson of the Lord where you have the Pharisee and the publican, and the prayer of each, and the publican, of course, is a tax collector. If you'll notice in Luke chapter 18 and about verse 13, but the tax collector, after talking about the Pharisee and the very self-centered prayer that he offered, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, why was he standing so far off? He was standing so far off because he was an outcast in society, and nobody would have anything to do with him. He was an outcast in society because he was unpatriotic. He was looked upon as being heartless, and he's looked upon as being crooked by his own people. Now, I don't want to speculate too much, and I certainly don't want to read anything into the text here, but I want to deal with who Matthew was. And I don't know much about him personally, but I'm trying to understand what he must have been like if he was a tax collector. Then I think it is very fair to say that he is viewed as being unpatriotic. Maybe he was very patriotic. I don't know. But he's certainly viewed as being unpatriotic. He was viewed by others as being a heartless type of individual, and he was viewed as being a person that uh, was very crooked and embezzled from the people and would gouge the people from the kind of uh, money that they had. And yet here's the kind of person that Jesus calls to be an apostle. He calls this outcast kind of person, a tax collector, a publican. And this tax collector leaves the receipt of customs and follows the Lord without question. Why did he do that? He certainly didn't do it for money because he was making money as a tax collector in the society, the Jewish society in which he lived. He certainly didn't do it for fame and fortune as he certainly didn't have any fame as a tax collector and he wouldn't receive such by being an apostle of Christ. And so there was something else in him leaving like he did. The lucrative position which he had with the Roman Empire and following the Lord. And I find in this an important sermon for our time. And of all of the passages that we have warning us of this and warning us of that, perhaps second to humility would be the matter of the stewardship of our possessions. Uh, One thing the Bible is continually admonishing us is to have the right kind of attitude toward worldly gain. And that we have to have the right kind of perspective about being a steward of the Lord. You see, a steward is a person who receives the possessions of another. And he's given the duty to handle them properly. And with stewardship, there's always the responsibility of accountability coming up later. And so each steward, if they're faithful, will give an account of their stewardship as to how well they discharge their duties with regard to the possessions of others. Well, that word is used with regard to our responsibility to God. And there are a number of important passages along that line. Let me mention just a few. One is in Matthew chapter 6. Now here in northern Galilee, 
Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount. And one of the topics that he mentions in this matter is the matter of money. And I turn to it just briefly here to make mention of it and to help us see the important lesson as well tonight, beginning at about verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a beautiful passage, and it's one that's a very much important part of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and it bears some discussion for the moment. Uh, One of the things I want us to understand, to have a well-balanced attitude about this, is that, you know, we do need money to live here. Uh, We need money to provide for our families. We need money, material possessions, to care for our families and to house, feed, and clothe our, our families and ourselves. And he's really not trying to say here or teach here, you know, just don't have anything to do with money at all whatsoever. Just don't have anything to do with it. Leave it alone. That's not what he's saying. But I think the key to this passage and understanding it is found in the first part of verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. In other words, don't stack it up and stack it up and stack it up. And to the point where one begins to love that more than he loves the Lord. And one begins to have an inordinate affection toward that material good more so than God and his responsibility to God. Do not do that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because look how temporary the treasures are, where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But now do this. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he's admonishing us to think more on a spiritual plane, a higher level, than for the immediate gratification of this world's goods. Let's turn to another passage, another warning with regard to riches. This comes to mind when I think about Matthew leaving the receipt of customs and following the Lord. It's found in Matthew chapter 13, and and that passage you'll recall is a passage that describes for us the matter of uh, the parable of the sower. And as you go further down into the chapter, the disciples are asking, well, what does this parable mean? And you and I on Wednesday nights had looked at some of the parables of Jesus, and it's a very rewarding study to consider these parables. And a parable, you remember, um, is a, a spiritual lesson. It's uh, the word parabole means to throw alongside of. And, you, and sometimes we said, well, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's a pretty good definition of what a parable is. It, it's kind of a, a story with another story thrown alongside of, hence the meaning of the word parabole. Thrown alongside of is a more a deeper meaning to the story. And it was a wonderful way for Jesus to teach. And he says, now a sower goes forth to sow. Some seed fell by the wayside. And some seed fell on the shallow ground, and some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked out the word. Well, the disciples were indecisive with regard to the exact meaning of the parable, and by verse 18, they're asking the Lord, what does this parable mean? And he tells them at about verse 22 about the point at hand, 
for ourselves here. And he says, and for what was sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And Jesus, once again, is warning that there's a certain kind of heart here, a certain kind of soil that needs to beware of the matter of riches, that riches are very deceitful, and they can cause to choke out the word of God so that it does not bear the fruit that God had intended for it to bear in our lives. A very interesting story warning us about this particular matter of riches and wealth and having the proper attitude about such comes to us in Matthew chapter 19, and I thought I'd spend just a a brief minute examining it uh, for you. And it comes in the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was an individual. Now, I'll spend a moment about him in just a moment. I, I think I'll go on down after the discussion with the rich young ruler. You remember, he's so wealthy, and yet because he had great wealth, he turned away very sorrow, sorrowfully. He wanted to be a, a follower of Christ. Maybe even Christ is calling a person here to be an apostle, but because he had great riches... Uh, he would not give those riches up. He loved his riches more than he loved the Christ of God. In verse 23, though, he says, And Jesus said to his disciples in response, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying we've got to be very careful with regard to the matter of our wealth. Again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I think what Jesus is using here is hyperbole. Hyperbole is a literary device which is a purposeful exaggeration to make the point. He's not really talking about literally a camel going through the eye of a needle. But to use an exaggerated point, hyperbole, He's trying to emphasize how difficult it is for individuals to handle wealth and handle it properly. Uh, it's a difficult matter that we all have got to be very careful about. I've, try, I've seen some who write about the matter where they thought that this was a kind of gate in the city wall, but it's not a gate. Luke tells us very carefully in his account that it's a surgical type of needle. And he's talking about a needle here, but he doesn't literally mean putting a camel through the eye of that needle as he's saying it's a difficult matter. And we've got to be very careful, and the point of our discussion for the present is, you know, God's warning us here. Now, if we're not careful, we will disembowel these particular passages. And we have an unusual way of doing that. We will look at those passages, and we will say, well, that really doesn't apply to me. That applies to rich people. Or we'll minimize the significance of such passages. Or we will ignore these passages and just simply act like they do not exist. Rather than conform to them, we will try to make them conform to us. And we'll try to rearrange them and manipulate them so that it's much more comfortable for us in the matter of our wealth. When all the time the Bible is warning us over and over again, be careful about your riches. Be careful. Uh, Make sure that you put God first. And don't allow anything to come between you and your love and your devotion to God. The riches in and of themselves are not evil. We need wealth, money to live. 
And so he's not condemning having money, why Barnabas was a wealthy person. Joseph of Arimathea, Abraham. I can mention a number of very godly-minded men who were wealthy in the pages of the Bible. The riches themselves do not condemn. It's the love of riches that really condemns us. And that's a point that Paul was making to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. And in this particular passage, he's telling us about the love of riches. And there, the Bible simply says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, these passages should be marked in our Bible. And we ought to go back to them and read them very carefully. This 1 Timothy 6.10 passage is a passage that is saying that wealth and money is the root of all evil. Now, we would like to disembowel that passage and in our minds think of it as, uh, well, the love of money is the root of some evil. But that's not really what he says in verse 10. He says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, or this translation says, all kinds of evils. We've got to be very careful about it. Money, wealth, is a very powerful thing. We need to be very careful with regard to our use of it. And somehow, in our minds, we're saying already, those passages don't apply to me. Those passages are talking about rich folks. And I'm not a rich folk. Those passages are talking about rich people. I'm not a rich person. But think for a moment about that. Living in modern America as we do, if we are somewhere in that middle class of wage earners, we have more than 90 to 95 percent of what the world has. We, living in modern America, middle-class type wage earners, have more than what 90 to 95 percent of all who ever lived had. We're the rich people. And before we begin to say in our heart and mind, these passages don't apply to me, we need to think again. God has blessed us. I'm studying tonight about a man who left all that to respond to God. And I've got to look at my own heart and really look deep and objectively at it and recognize, yes, I need this lesson about responding to God, that I've got to love him more than I love what money that I have. Now, simply because the Bible is warning us about money, I have knocked on the doors and I've tried to study with people who were very poor, and they were some of the meanest rascals I ever saw. And so just because a person is poor doesn't make him righteous. And just because a person may be wealthy doesn't make him bad, doesn't make him evil. But there is a certain temptation that comes with having money. There's something, there's a strong pull about the matter. 
that we've got to be very careful about. And I learned that lesson. When I think about Matthew, it's something we ought to consider. Matthew's life is a lesson that's needed in our time. But I want you to know that Jesus chose Matthew. Even though Matthew was despised as a publican, perhaps looked upon as unpatriotic, perhaps looked upon as a traitor to his people, an outcast, as we saw in that prayer between the publican and the Pharisee. Jesus chose Matthew. But Matthew also chose Jesus. There are some people that Jesus came up to to talk to about this matter of service, devotion, and discipleship, and they said no to him, but not Matthew. One's the scribe in Matthew chapter 8, and I've listed that for you, and I Spend just a brief moment reading about him. This particular individual makes quite a statement regarding his devotion to the Lord. He says, I'll go wherever you want to go. And Jesus, in trying to help him understand the cost of discipleship, was saying, now the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You need to understand what it means to be a disciple of the Lord. That scribe, of course, we read no more about him. And then he goes further in verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's a strong double play on words here. He's using the word here in an unusual way. Let the dead bury the dead. The problem with this particular man was he used the word first. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, is there anything wrong in burying your father? Is there anything wrong in seeing after family matters? No. But to push Jesus to the end of the line, that's as wrong as it can be. Let me first go bury it. Let me first take care of this. This comes first. Jesus said, follow me and let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their own physical dead and becomes a powerful lesson that we've got to put Jesus first and he's not going to be second or third place in our life. Family matters are important, but we must love God supremely. Then this matter of Luke chapter 18, I'd like to go back to that and and read a a brief moment on that particular passage because here's this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and I guess he's just caught up in the moment and he he really wants to follow the Lord and he asks a a very insightful question which I wish more would ask. Uh, The ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the right question. Luke chapter 18 and 18. That's the right question to ask, and I wish more would ask that. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, which is a wonderful lesson in that. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You see, he lived under the Old Testament dispensation. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, 
follow me. It could be that Jesus is calling another apostle here. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He wouldn't do it. He loved his riches more than he loved God. You see, some people said no to Jesus. When Jesus called them, some said no. When Jesus called this man Matthew, Matthew said yes. And I'd like to explain a little bit now and and discuss with you as to why Matthew chose Jesus. It's clear that Jesus chose him. Why did Matthew choose Jesus? And I have some suggestions that I'd like to offer, and then I'm going to give you the real answer in just a minute. But these are some of the suggestions that I have read and seen by others, and I really don't embrace them at all. But I want you to know about them, because you probably may be thinking along that same line as others uh, have in the past, or you may come across it. Some think that Matthew chose Jesus because Matthew saw such a charismatic figure here. Uh, Jesus had such a powerful presence. Uh, Jesus was such a powerful preacher, such a powerful teacher. He had such a charismatic ability about him and such a drawing and such a following. Matthew says, yes, yes, I'll go with you. But yet, I really don't think that has a, a bearing on the matter because others looked at Jesus and said no to him. The ability of Jesus to present himself before others was not the drawing card. Um, in fact, uh, he had a powerful presence about him. John chapter 2 and verse 15, he walked into the temple when he saw them buying and selling and making merchandise of the temple. He made a whip out of some cords and he drove them out. He sent the oxen out. He sent the doves out. He said, you're not going to make a, a house of trade out of my father's house. He had a powerful presence about him. He was certainly not a weak, uh, effeminate type of person that we sometimes are drawn to think about from the artistry and the word pictures that are given to us today. He had a powerful presence about it, but was this the drawing power of the Lord? Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 tells us that he grew up out of a plant before him as a tender plant and at a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing special about his looks that would attract people to him. Perhaps Matthew chose Jesus because Matthew was fed up with all this. Some have suggested Matthew chose Jesus because he was tired of his life. He didn't like the way life was going, and it was a sterile, shallow kind of life as he was devoting his life toward money and making more money and, and accumulating more and more. And he decided, well, I've had enough of this, and I'm, I'm going to uh, go a new way, and I have a new opportunity here, and so I'm going to take advantage of it. Well, there's nothing in the text about that. The text doesn't say anything about Matthew being dissatisfied with his life. That would be purely speculation. Something I would have to add because the text doesn't teach it. The reason Matthew chose Jesus is because of what Jesus taught. He hears Jesus. Matthew's from Capernaum. Jesus is preaching in and around Capernaum. Matthew hears the sermons of the Lord. He's there when Jesus on the mount is saying, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust 
doth corrupt and where thieves cannot break in and steal. And as a tax collector, he's hearing that. And it resonates with him. He's listening to the preaching. He understands the teaching. He sees the miracles which Jesus performed in uh, Mark chapter 2 and, and in Matthew chapter 11. And he saw and he heard and he was converted. And when Jesus walks up to that tax booth, there are several things that Matthew did not do that you and I do. Matthew didn't offer excuses when God called him. Matthew responded. He did not say, Lord, I'm just not spiritually good enough, even that, though that was true. And he did not offer the excuse, Lord, I'm just not good enough, even though that was true. And he did not say, I'm just not gifted enough, even though that was true. And he did not say, well, I'm just not sure enough about this, even though that may or may not have been true. I don't know. I know one thing. He didn't say that. He did not say like the rich young ruler, or do like the rich young ruler did, go away sad because he had such great riches. He left his riches. He did not do as Felix, where Felix said, well, when there's a more convenient day, I'll hear about this some other time. Delay. He did not do as Agrippa did upon hearing righteousness and judgment to come. Almost you persuade me to become a Christian. But he got up and he closed up that shop and he followed Jesus because he knew two things that you and I need to learn. Matthew followed God, the Christ of God, and the will of God because Matthew knew nobody deserves the love that God is showing me. In Romans chapter 5, you have a beautiful passage about the love of God. And often we will go to John 3.16, and it is a powerful passage about God's love. But equally powerful is Romans 5, wherein he says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Praise God for that. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that wonderful true? Matthew knew that, and we need to know it. That no matter how good we might be or try to be, and we are to work toward greater levels of righteousness and faithfulness, In our lives, none of us deserve the wonderful love of God. And I'd have to say that uh, this world makes sense. Sometimes people say, well, this world doesn't make any sense. And I know people feel that way. But this world makes perfect sense. Once you understand something of the great love of God.
Now, if you didn't have the love of God, the world wouldn't make any sense. But because there is the love of God, and God showed his love toward us in giving us his only son, who died and paid the price for us, this world makes perfect sense. Whereby we live for him. It is a preparation phase of life that we're going through so that we'll be over there with him one great day. You'll remember we studied the prophet Amos a little while ago. It was Amos who said to Israel, Thus I will do this unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. And that's what we're doing tonight, today, in our lives. We're preparing. We're getting ready to meet God. And the love of God constrains us and motivates us and helps us understand how much we need God and what it means for us to be obedient to God, how that we will meet him one great day. No one deserves God's love. There's a second thing that I think Matthew knew that I, you and I really need to know, and that is I need God. Now, this is something you and I need to be very careful about right here because it's always tempting for us to think of ourselves as being self-sufficient. We really don't need anybody. After all, I got the light bill paid for this month, (laughs) and I got the car payment made, and the house payments made. I ain't got any problems. We need God. We never come to such a period in time in our life where we do not need God For without him, we are really nothing. And I go back to the text that was read tonight for our lesson text in Luke chapter 5. And this is the second thing that I want us to learn what Matthew knew. In Luke chapter 5 and 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. You see that? He's making a feast for Jesus. He's a happy man now. He knows Jesus has met his needs. And there was a large company. Who's there? Tax collectors. The high and the mighty of Jewish society is not there. Who? The very low. The tax collectors are there. And others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And in this wonderful passage, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The sick need Christ. What kind of sickness? Sin in their life. Sin dominates their life. Christ has come to help get the sin out of our life. And he'll get it out of our life by our obedient faith and our acceptance of him. As we turn to him, the sin can get out of my life. And I can be filled with a sickness. The sickness of sin. And Matthew knew this. Matthew knew that no one deserves the love of God. And that he really needed Christ. That Christ could get the sin out of his life. As Matthew turns to him in obedient faith. That's why Matthew chose Jesus. 
Jesus chose Matthew, and Matthew chose Jesus. Now, when Matthew decided to close up that shop, he took with him only two things that I can see. He took his pen and his skills. And Jesus would use both of those things. Matthew would take his pen and write this wonderful gospel account of the Lord. And the skills that he had developed as a tax collector, the detail, he would write those matters down. And when he's hearing Jesus talk about, you know, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, he's writing that down. And he's looking at those times when he talks about John the Baptist. There was none greater born of women than John the Baptist But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Matthew's writing all that down. And he's taking very meticulous matters down because that's the kind of tradesman that he was. And Jesus knew this is the kind of man that could write these matters down and write it skillfully. And as he does, that book means a whole lot more to me now. When I open up the book of Matthew... I open up a book where a man is saying, the king has come, and his kingdom is coming. And Matthew writes down, you've heard that it had been said of them of old time. And he quotes those Old Testament scriptures, and he's quoting Jesus, and he's writing all these matters down to prove to the Jewish mind, the king has come, and his kingdom's coming. The Lord's New Testament church which, as we know, was established on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which you can be a member tonight through faithful gospel obedience. By repenting of sin and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ, and by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, you can be added to the church of the living God. Now, when God called Matthew, he responded. And God, through the Scripture, is calling you tonight Will you respond? Will you lay down all the items that mean so much to you and obey from the heart this doctrine which God has given, Romans chapter 6, to become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, and be added to the church of the living God? Won't you do it tonight? Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?